0: For the record, some of you aren't going to understand this right away if you weren't here last week. We are not planning or preparing or ever considering unhitching from the Old Testament. But <laughs> we know who was here last week. The president of Reformed Theological Seminary, Dr. Michael Kruger, professor of Old Testament, also there says, few would disagree that we're now living in an effectively post-Christian world. Secularism is on the rise, church attendance is in decline, and hostility to Christian values is ever increasing. Have we missed something? Are we doing something incorrectly that we need to change? Andy Stanley's latest volume, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed the World, answers that question with a resounding yes. Stanley writes, we have been on the wrong track and we need to change if we're going to reach the next generation with the gospel. Modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. Stanley challenges church leaders Would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? This is necessary because when it comes to stumbling blocks to the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. Put simply, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Hear this well again, faith, this church is not planning nor ever shall depart or unhitch from the Old Testament. Today we're in the New Testament, but no, we are in the Old Testament where we have been since last September in the book of First Samuel as we are working our way through it. We are in chapter 26 today, and we find out that in the opening of chapter 6, that Saul once again is hot on the trail of David. And so Saul kind of figures out where he's at through his latest intel, and he goes into the area of the part of the world where he believes David is hiding out, and uh, Saul encamps with his army and takes a little break. David gets his latest intel telling him where Saul is and that he is asleep in the circle of his army. Beginning in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 26, So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, yep, there was Saul laying asleep inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and he will perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now, please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. I go back in my mind to 1976, to Atlanta, Georgia. We just purchased our first home with a VA loan. Unbeknownst to us, and again, remember back in those days, I was a normal human being, well, relatively normal human being, who was working my way through first community college and then on to Georgia State had no idea whatsoever that I was ever going into ministry. But we just happened to live only a couple of blocks away from Columbia Seminary. I knew what a seminary was, but I didn't know anything about Columbia, much less uh, any of the individuals of note who graduated from Trinity, and it was only as I was Googling Columbia Seminary this week in preparation for my message to make sure that it was even still in existence, I was rather stunned to find out that Peter Marshall was a graduate of Columbia, J. Vernon McGee was a graduate of Columbia, and Dr. D. James Kennedy all matriculated at that seminary. Then again, back in those days, I probably had no clue as to who those men were in the first place because I was a baby Christian. Anyway, it was around this time that in my daily discipline, even as a baby Christian of at least attempting and usually successful of reading through the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words of God on an annual basis. That I would take advantage with a friend of mine that was going to our little home church in the day, and we would go into the bowels of Columbia Seminary, into what we are call the stacks of the library, and just sit and pour over the Word and to study it. Again, no idea about going to seminary or anything else. Silly me. I thought Christians would want to study the Bible. Anyway, it was around this time that as I was reading through the Word, I was in 1 Samuel. And I remember just so clearly, I was reading this passage and how David not once but twice says that even though the Lord has given my enemy into my hand, I will not put forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Well, the first time David says that, we've already gone over it. It was back in chapter 24. And it was when Saul was quite literally caught with his pants down in the cave and God had orchestrated the affairs of the day such that David and his men were hiding inside the cave. In chapter 24, David restates in verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. He's speaking to Saul. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now that was, as I said, a previous scene in David's and Saul's tumultuous relationship. And so we're going to just put that on a shelf for a bit. And we now enter the next vignette where Saul once again forgot all the kind words that he had to say in that day when David had in fact spared Saul and Saul knew that he had him dead to rights. And so here Saul now is yet once again, hot on the trail of David. What we don't want to lose track of is the fact, again, that the Lord is clearly behind the events of history, which in this case is to bring about the rise of the man whom God wants to be king as both a front runner and as a type of the king of kings who will rule and reign over the hearts of men, namely Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We're in chapter 26, as I said, and again, the Lord delivers Saul into David's hands, beginning in verse 9. David says to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So back to the stacks at Columbia Seminary. Saul is a wretched individual. That is not a matter of bias. That is not a matter of perspective or jealousy or a lust for power on the part of David. We have been given clear historical perspective showing us and telling us that Saul is bad, David is good. David is so tired of running, but he fears for his life and rightly so. And the Lord has now turned Saul over to David again for the second time, where David could have eliminated his pursuer and been perfectly just in doing so. But he doesn't. And what struck me way back then in the bowels of that seminary, and numerous times since then, was that David had such a profound respect for the Lord's lordship, And as such, a faith in the Lord's reign over the affairs of mankind, including his, David's, not just mankind in general, but intimately over David's life as well. That while David would love to see Saul lay off his attacks and could have resolved that situation all by himself, David refuses to take out the very one whom God himself put in that place of power. Still, David is hopeful. I just read it. He said, I will not destroy this one who is the Lord's anointed, but as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Or his day will come that he dies. Think about Nabal from a couple of weeks back. Or he will go down into battle and perish, but again, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Back in the day, when I was a young believer, I was aware of this mindset in some churches, usually imposed by desperate pastors, that their being called to the role of pastor by God, and their being called to their particular ministry by God, was somehow equivalent to how Saul was installed by God as king. And based on David's inspired words in the text, Thou shalt not put forth thy hand against the Lord's anointed means you better not cross your pastor. Because after all, he is the Lord's anointed. And I have to say, I like that. It's completely wrong, but I like that. That's the kind of stuff that cults are made of. While I cannot remember the specific situation in the day or who it involved, there was something like this going on in a church, and the pastor's defense was, thou shalt not put forth thy hand against the Lord's anointed. Well, it didn't sit right with me then, and with some years of experience and more time with the Lord and his word, it became clear to me that there is a world of difference between a church's prayerful, to be sure, but human, nonetheless, process for calling a man to be their pastor, which even while using the language, as is often done, about the anointing of God on that pastor, was not the same thing as God's up-close-and-personal spelling out to a prophet. Who would be the next king? Now, that being said, I do believe that there is a certain level of carryover, or at least what I call derivative application in principle, to our circumstances today. There have been many scurrilous leaders throughout the history of our country, elected by a process that indeed is unique to the rest of the world. And yet somehow in that peculiar intersection of human free will and yet God's sovereign control of all things, leaders do get selected, much to the dismay of many, on both sides of the aisle, as the saying goes. And I'm speaking now metaphorically of both uh, politically and ecclesiologically, meaning churches and their leadership, and the nations, and their leadership. But keeping that in mind, whether we are thinking specifically about pastors, or we are thinking about presidents, or kings, or dictators, or governors, or senators, or congressmen, or supreme court justices, or selectmen, or mayors, remember this from the book of Daniel... The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. It is repeated four times in that short book. So King Saul is asleep. And there he is by design. There is a perimeter of all his warriors around him. And Saul is right smack dab in the middle, snoring away. And yet... David is able to go into the camp with his help and he's able to grab the spear and the water jug that is right next to the sleeping king's head. Nobody aware that their security has been compromised. Now, a reasonable person hearing of this story or reading of this story would laugh as if it is sheer fairy tale. It's so absolutely implausible that anybody's going to be able to do that, to get in through all those ranks and grab the spear and the jug from the king and to leave undetected. And it would be unbelievable, except verse 12 adds the little detail. Saul's army were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. This was not just natural circumstances. These were supernatural circumstances, and this was a miracle. And when you are divinely anesthetized, you are not waking up. In verses 13 through 16, David now, and again, this guy's attitude I so cannot relate to. But it gives us another glimpse again of God calling David a man after his own heart. David dresses down Abner, who was one of Saul's kingpin warriors. And he's rebuking him in front of everybody for not protecting the king who is David's sworn enemy. You'd think that David would be celebrating such incompetence. But he additionally exclaims that Abner and his men should all be put to death. Such a display of failure to safeguard the one who David again refers to as the Lord's anointed in verse 16. Saul wipes the sleep from his eyes. And then Saul recognized David's voice. And he says, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, "'It is my voice, my lord, the king.' He also said, "'Why then is my lord pursuing thy servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand?' Now therefore, please let my lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant." Now, now, if the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today, so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea. Listen to his humility again. You come out to search for a single flea just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Like, Saul, why are you wasting your time on me? Then Saul said, reminiscent of just two chapters ago, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again. Yeah, right. Because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool. Remember Nabal, he was a prototype, if you will, or a type of Saul playing the fool with his life or his name means the fool or the foolish and have committed a serious error. David replied, behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of his young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refused to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is the seventh repeat of the phrase in just these few verses. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may, may my life be val- highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. And so David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is basically, I mean, the historical scenario has changed. The epoch, the time of the epics is the same. The time and the specifics have changed. But this is basically an overlay of what happened just two chapters ago with the first time that Saul is delivered into David's hands. The last thing that Saul says to David is acknowledging that David will prevail. The first time he said, truly, you will be. King. End of story then, right? And they all went their way and they all lived happily ever after. Well, not quite. Because as I said, David's heard it all before. And he decides that in spite of everything that's transpired and for all the great and kind words and truthful words of Saul, that the only place of at least momentary rest for David is going to be in the land of the Philistines. Even Saul will be reluctant to follow David into the land where Saul knows that he and his army would be imperiled. Chapter 27. Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So let's make a note here. We need to make a note of the fact that while we have seen over and over that David fully, in a strange way again that I can't relate to, David fully trusts in the power and the might of God that he understands in only ways that we are able to read about. But for all of David's trust and confidence in the Lord and his experiences with him, David did not have a mentality of let go and let God. David is still vigilant in his military preparedness. David is still cautious in his assessment of his enemies, and in fact, while he has experienced, again, God's direct intervention in miraculous ways in his life situations with Saul, David nevertheless is fully in the game using common sense, being discerning, being prepared, still exercising human responsibility and making plans and executing those plans based on his wisdom and his experience. Saul says all the right things. And what's David do? Not buying it. I trust in God so fully that I will not put this man to death. God's going to have to take him out. God anointed him. He is God's to deal with. But neither am I going to be hoodwinked again. And the only place for me to find refuge is to go into the land of his enemies, which is the Philistines. What I take away from this is that God's sovereignty God's supreme control and rule over all things never excuses us from our participation in the affairs of our lives and the world around us. We cannot lay back and just be fatalists who believe, as Doris Day sang in that 1956 hit song, Que Sirrah, Sirrah, join me, old people. Whatever will be will be The future is ours to see. Isn't the future's not ours to see? K, Sirrah, sera. It means whatever will be will be. Fatalism. Yeah, don't worry about it. it's all take care of itself. And I believe that debuted, or at least was made popular, in the movie *The Man Who Knew Too Much*, with Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, and Doris Day were in that movie. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Ksarassa, 1956. Who was alive in 1956? I want to add that Barbara and I were just barely alive in 1956. Okay, three years old. That was a big song, very big in Sheboygan, very big. So David arose, verse 2, and he crossed over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Akish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. i got to clear my throat now. <laughs> Hebrew and Russian, they both have those very guttural, th- anyway. Akish thinks that David exists to be Akish's slave. I mean, David is playing this well, and he is truly sincere, but David's not offering him into Akish's hand to be his handmaid. So Akish is making a big tactical mistake here. Again, remember who David is. David isn't waiting to be king. David is the current anointed king by God. We are watching the process of his assuming and ascending To the throne. He is the king of Israel already. So we'll leave David in the land of the Philistines, where in verse four we are told that David's intention for going there again was realized for when Saul found out where he was and Saul no longer searched for him. Yeah, no, not going there. Chapter 28 now begins with Akish declaring war on Israel. And again, thinking somehow that David, with all of his uh, kind gestures and his previous history, he does have a bit of a history with Akish and a good history with Akish, thinks that now David is basically his slave. And so he orders David to join him in battle against Israel, against the very people Or who David is king over. And in verse 2, David says, Yeah, right. Now watch and see what I can do. Now, verse 2 comes to a really abrupt stop right there. And the narrative leaves us hanging. While there's a change in the scene, and the focus now is going to be upon... uh, Sorry, the change in the scene is from the focus being on David to the desperation of King Saul. Verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Remember a while back we talked about, because it came up in the text, the Urim and Thummim, which are contained in the breastplate of the high priest, and it's not completely understood even what they were. Some people believe that they were uh, two stones of two different colors. Some believe they were two uh, sticks of differing sizes or what have you. But whatever the strange Urim and Thummim were, it was authorized by God to somehow discern God's will with his approval. It was a strange exception to kind of the normal ways that things were to be done. Well... The use of Urim and Thummim uh, from Dr. Bruce Waltke, who used to, uh, when he was alive, used to teach up at Regent University in Vancouver. I was trying to think. We heard him speak in church one time up there, did we not? Bob and Amy? You always remember everything. I thought you could tell me what he was wearing that day. Oh. Anyway, I think we did. If not, I'm making it up. He was a fa he was a famous, uh, very famous uh, theologian, and guy, you know this is what he says about the Urim and Thummim. He says this may be so, meaning that they went basically went out of out of use with the institution of the monarchy. God inaugurated at that time in full force the office of prophet, so that the prophets now participated in God's heavenly court and communicated God's messages to the court in Jerusalem and Samaria. So the Urim and Thummim. God was not speaking through. He was not speaking to Saul no matter what he did. God was completely silent. And he is now facing a cataclysmic situation with his enemy. And he wants God's counsel and advice. But it's not happening. Desperate people do desperate things. And Saul is desperate. And Saul said to his servants, verse 7, Seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Saul, are you kidding me? You just went from bad to being rebelliously worse. The Lord forbid the use of any and all occult mechanisms to contact the dead, to try and foresee the future, to try and make decisions, etc., and all of that. And in fact, it was so, he was so sternly against it because of why you'll see in a minute that he imposed the death penalty on anyone. And Saul, being the king, knew very well, for this was not a new dictate from God. This was now at this point 500 years in force. But as I said, desperate men do desperate things. Leviticus 19 is where we first read, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. And in Leviticus 20 Verse 6, as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Saul, what are you thinking? Now the question has been put to me numerous times over the years concerning fortune tellers. However you want to define that. Concerning tarot card readers, the use of crystal balls or crystals. Jumping into horoscopes. Oh, it's just kind of good fun. Or using seances or table tipping or Ouija boards or mediums or smalls or even larges. Ha! That was funny. <laughs> Sorry. And all of those things, and asking me ultimately, can people really contact the dead? And if they can, is it okay to do so? The quick answer is no, people cannot contact the dead, and no, it isn't okay to attempt to do so. But we have a peculiar passage now in front of us that we have to deal with. Before I get to that, I have to go back to Wheeling, Illinois before we came out here. There was a psychic fair in our town of Wheeling, which was weird. I mean, I could understand it here in Waterville when we came here in 1990 and Madison The occult was so obvious. I remember seeing advertisements for occult paraphernalia in the concourse. Some of you may remember there was a, for lack of a better term for it, a Wiccan supply store right there in the concourse. I mean, the occult was everywhere here, but this was Wheeling, Illinois. But there was a psychic fair announced and I thought, huh, that could be kind of amusing to go and try and engage people in conversation there, some of the people with their little booths or what have you. And so I did just that. And I saw a guy, and he had his little setup thing, and he had some books and stuff out on the table there. And he seemed normal enough. You know, it wasn't like he looked weird or anything. His particular forte, as we started talking, was Astrology. And as I began to challenge him on just the whole idea of the occult and basically who he's holding hands with and, and even himself dabbling in, although a lot of people just, oh, horoscopes, you know. He identified to me that, oh, no, he was a Christian. And that made it even more interesting. And so we talked a little bit more. And very quickly, of course, he had to play what I call he had to play the Magi card. Because as we all know, the Magi in the Gospels, the three wise men were stargazers. You see, it's biblical. And so we talked a little bit there about the uh, difference between astronomy And how in the book of Genesis, God even said he put the stars in the side for signs and for seasons to indicate various things. And the seasons and the signs were pertaining to the festivals of the Jewish calendar that were going to come about as he established the rituals of Judaism. All that was true, but it has nothing to do and no bearing on an individual's future. Well, we talked for some time. He wasn't convinced, but he did, did seem a little contemplative about the matter and I bid him adieu. My next stop was my real reason for going there, for I had read that one of the luminaries that was going to be there was none other than Irene Hughes. I don't know if you know who Irene Hughes was. She's now deceased. She died in 2012. But she was world acclaimed as a medium, as a psychic. Uh, She appeared on the Merv Griffin show. She had luminaries, none other than like Ava Gabor, people in Hollywood. Howard Hughes, the strange recluse billionaire, were all people that would use her services But she ended up moving to Chicago and here she was in little podunk Wheeling, Illinois at a psychic fair in a parking lot at one of our little shopping malls. Well, I was surprised, first of all, at how easy it was to approach her, meaning there was nobody around her. I mean, I figured someone of her note and all of that would have crowds thronging around and all, but. No, she, I mean, I walked right up to her and I was also truly surprised just at, at how positively bedraggled and old she looked. She looked old beyond her years, which I think at that time she would have been in at least in her late sixties, which, you know, sixties, man, that's like, that's like today's 30, you know, yesterday's (laughs) whatever. Right. Am I right? Yeah. (laughs) Heck yeah. yeah. Tell me. I truly have only vague recollection of my brief conversation with her, Um, and I fully expect, and by the way, at this time too, is when I was up to my neck in deliverance ministry and doing up-close-and-personal confrontations with the powers of darkness. That's a whole different story. And I have no doubt why she was very obviously agitated as I, I, the only thing I honestly remember saying to her was that, do you realize that you are dealing with the powers of demons? And she scurried away and went into Baskin-Robbins, which was, do you know what Baskin-Robbins is? It's one of those ice cream chains all over the country, I think, in the day. They're probably dead now. Anyway, she goes in and understand this was a day, I'm telling you, it was blistering hot. Clear blue sky, sun beating down, you got the hot black pavement. And why do I mention all that? Is that? God has such a profound sense of humor in strange ways. So here goes this little Irene Hughes who reminded me of a bag lady. She comes out of Baskin-Robbins with a big ice cream cone. It was about this tall of ice cream, pink ice cream. And with the hot sun, really, 90, could have been 100, I don't know. And then the pavement and everything else, she comes out. She has ice cream like a little kid all over her face. The ice cream has been like a waterfall down her hand and down her arm, which being very shocking pink in color, was so just visible and everything. And I just thought, what what a sad little individual this was. And as she came out again and saw me (laughs) standing there, she started, started shouting to the air, pointing to me, saying, he worships Satan. And I thought, well then. But there was nobody around to hear her. Well, it was stunning, I thought that this world-renowned psychic didn't know that I would be there. Pretty good. All right. I was going to count that. As two seconds. That was good. All right. Saul says, seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Can people really contact the dead? If you've read ahead, you know what comes. And it's a really fair question based on what happens, which we're not going to get to today. But the quick answer again is no, people cannot contact the dead. And again, no, it is not okay to attempt to do so. So then what do we do with Saul and the medium at Endor and what transpires? It's a great question. But as I said, we're out of time. So we will come back to the Old Testament. We're not unhitching from it. We will come back. But we cannot, we must not ever unhitch from any aspect of the word of God what we need to do is strive and endeavor diligently to rightly divide the word of truth to the glory of his name and praise. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you that you are the one who knows all things and you are our amazing God and you, Lord, are involved in the affairs of the world even more up close and personal, Lord, than I think I really, really believed before I started in this endeavor in Samuel. And I thank you for that because we need the encouragement to know that for all else that is going on, you are just tarrying in bringing everything to their climactic conclusion because your delay is actually your mercy against those who do not yet know you. Lord in heaven, give us a burden for those lost. Give us a burden for those people, Lord, who don't know their left hand from their right hand and who now may even be blatantly enemies of the cross. Father, we know that you love them all. Give us your heart and your passion for them, to help them see that you are the amazing, awesome, great I am. And there is none like you. In your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.